You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Hello, Steve Morrison here at CSIS. On February 18th and 19th, I had the pleasure of joining the Munich Security Conference. That was a Friday and Saturday. It was a particularly poignant moment in the looming crisis of Ukraine. What I did while I was there was enlist six friends and prominent figures in the world of health security and global health as well as foreign affairs, to do a mini-series of podcasts. Those include Seth Berkeley, the head of Gavi, Robin Niblett, the head of Chatham House in London, Dr. John Nkengazong, the head of Africa CDC, and soon, we hope, will be the director of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief here in Washington, D.C., Tom Boyke, Council on Foreign Relations, Jeremy Farrar, Welcome Trust, and Richard Hatchett, head of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. I do hope you'll enjoy these. Each of them in their own way offered some great insights into what was happening from Munich in the fields of health security and global health, as well as the broader geopolitical crisis that was building at our door at that time. Thank you. Steve Morrison here. We're in Munich. It's Friday, February 18th, and I'm joined by a good friend, Seth Berkeley, who's the CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. Seth, it's wonderful to see you again, and thanks so much for making time with us here in Munich. I'm going to open with the first question that I'm putting to everyone in this series, which is, what brings you to Munich? Two years after we were here before, you can offer us some reflections comparatively of around two years ago. But why are you here? This is a gathering of heads of state, 30 heads of state, 100 ministers, almost all foreign affairs and security. This is a community of people dedicated to a kind of common security agenda on the transatlantic basis between Europe and North America principally. But it has obviously global reach. So tell us about why you're here and what you're hoping to achieve. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And if I want to go back to two years ago, we were here at a time, you know, asking the question, is this the big one or is this just a dress rehearsal for the big one? But a more important discussion at that point was, is health a security issue? And as you well know, in fact, many thought it wasn't and thought it was a distraction to include this. But what we've seen over the last two years is the devastating effects that have occurred from this pandemic, not only in loss of lives, but economically in terms of peace and security, in terms of of turning back development, which has a profound effect, the inequalities that have existed, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, it's an absolutely clear question that it is a security issue. Here to make that case. Well, I'm here to make that case, but I'm also here to make the case that during peacetime, like in military terms, we have to continue to practice and prepare and work. Because one of the things we've learned with pandemics, with epidemics, is that they are top of mind for a short period of time. And then as soon as they get better, people move on to other issues and don't pay attention. No money flows, no systems get built, and that leaves us unprepared for the future. Of course, for us as vaccine people, 
we need two things. Yes, we need vaccines, and we were lucky this time we got vaccines quickly, but we also need resilient health systems to be able to deliver those vaccines absolutely to the last inch. And that is not only important for delivering vaccines, but it's also important for global health security because it's in those last inches where outbreaks may start. And if you have a health worker there who's delivering those vaccines, that is a source of information and the ability to connect those distal communities back to the main system. Now, we were just together at a town hall that featured David Malpass, the head of the World Bank, Ngozi Ngoela, World Trade Organization, Kristalina from IMF, the new Minister of Economic Development in the German government. What did you take away from that? Well, I, I think if you look at those institutions, all of those institutions see the importance of both pandemic preparedness and the current pandemic and the effects it's had on development and the situation there. I think the challenge, though, is how in a pandemic are we able to move quickly and take the risks we need to move forward? And I think that has been a challenge for many institutions. And that's going to be very important as we have honest conversations about moving forward for the future. The work we do at COVAX requires a fair amount of risk. There will be vaccine wastage. We had to go ahead and purchase vaccines before they knew if they worked. We've had to work with countries to build health systems and use new ways of moving and you know, financing that are quicker with no regrets. That type of risk taking is going to be absolutely critical. And how do we make sure that that's in position, that we learn from all of the things that have happened so far and do better next time? That's going to be critical. I'm increasingly worried, and I want to explain why and get your thoughts. We've entered this very murky transition, right? We've Omicron's raced across the world. It's created a new wall of immunity, at least for some period of time. The mass immunizations, mass vaccine coverage in much of the world has also built up a significant wall protection. We now have antivirals coming forward. We have political shifts going on, increasing exhaustion, frustration, anger, and some violence. And we're seeing in America, we're seeing in Canada, we're seeing in, in, in Europe, the UK, in some parts of Asia, we're seeing this shift of this sort of movement and saying, well, the emergency is over. We're moving into an endemic period. We can begin to think beyond this. Some of that may very much be true, but much of it may also be very premature in the sense of what the realities continue to be in low and middle income countries and also the continued unfinished business in Europe and North America and the continued threat of the next variants, which we know there will be next variants. And so I worry that we're going to see a precipitous decline of interest, energy, financing, political will to step up to all of those things that we talked about today at the town hall. Former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown published an op-ed in the Financial Times yesterday pointing to a $16 billion gap in the resources required for Gavi, COVAX, for WHO, for the Global Fund Replenishment, and CEPI, uh, just to name a few, right, under the Act A and, and the like. How are you looking at this? Do you see a threat of things moving towards complacency and disengagement? Because the battle's not over. And the challenges that you're attempting through COVAX to meet, and you also have broader demands still upon Gavi on the whole spectrum of immunizations for which you're an integral global player. So, Steve, you're absolutely right. Complacency is the worst enemy here. And if I go back to the last big hysteria, if I want to call it, around global health security, it was around Ebola in 2015. And I remember very well, we stepped in, again, took risk, put money on the table so that the manufacturer would know there was somebody to buy vaccine if they were to develop it. And at that moment in time, everybody said to me, money's no object, whatever it takes. 
Three months later, when I had to go and try to put together financing for that, what I heard was, oh, that's yesterday's problem. We're not focused on that anymore. And I have to agree. I mean, it would be a great thing if Omicron is the last variant and if we now see a return to normality around the world. It is possible. But do we go ahead and prepare for what is our hopeful future or do we prepare for the reality? The reality is every four months, we have had a new variant, and there is no reason to think we won't have another variant. That variant might be milder, but it might be more severe. So the right thing to do is to continue to prepare for worsening variants, worsening disease. And the best way to do that is to make sure that high-risk people everywhere in the world are vaccinated and, and as protected as well as they can be. Let's talk a bit about this next phase that we're in, because I know you're an expert on vaccines, vaccine development. There's a lot of discussion about the need for new vaccines that are going to have deeper and longer lasting immunities that may have hand coronavirus applications. There's a talk about vaccines specific to the Omicron variant or other variants. We've got Novavax, other protein vaccines coming forward. So there's a new diversification that's happening. Tell us your, your thoughts around where are we right now and what's this next phase going to look like? So a couple of answers to that question. So first of all, going back to this issue of needing to continue to focus on these issues, there was a lot of work that was done on a SARS vaccine, and it was stopped when SARS was over and ended. Now, that's unfortunate because had we continued that work, we would have had potentially a SARS vaccine. Now, why is that important? A very interesting observation was that in people who had SARS and then who went on to get a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, that they actually have protection against the whole range of coronaviruses. They get broad-based protection. So one possibility would be, you know, a vaccine that started off with a SARS-like antigen and then switched to a SARS-CoV-2 to get broad protection, but we hadn't taken the vaccines all the way forward. And this is a little bit of this, you know, um, rush forward and work hard on something and then stop. That is a problem. In terms of vaccines, we want to have a portfolio of vaccines. The West has mostly gone with mRNA vaccines. Those are new technologies. We don't know the duration of protection of those vaccines. We've seen it getting shorter with the boosters. And so whether that's going to be a long-term vaccine, we don't know, but it's great because you can make it quickly. But one of the problems, for example, with the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine, it's a minus 80 degree you know, storage. And that is very difficult for rural developing countries. So we need a portfolio. The Novavax vaccine is a high efficacy vaccine on a standard technique that is temperature stable and um, has relatively low side effects. And so it might be the exact type of workhorse vaccine you would want in the rural area of a country that had a poor infrastructure because it could be handled much easier. So you could see a situation where a country might say, we want three vaccines. We want an mRNA in our capital city. We have the infrastructure for that. We want something like a Novavax for our rural areas because it's easier to use. And in our refugee camps or in a fragile area, we want to use the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as a single dose because it's very hard to reach people there and to go back and do follow-up. That would be a rational decision. We want to get countries to a place where they can say we have the right vaccine in the right place at the right time to meet the needs of our population. And of course, what we want in the future is vaccines that can be given mucosally, orally, or nasally that will provide protection against infection and not just disease because that would have a dramatic effect also on the pandemic. 
Let me ask you a question about China. We recently published a piece looking at the zero COVID policy and the risks associated that with that and some of the great unknowns in China and what the options might look like. We do know that their population is vulnerable, right? Less than 1% have been infected with COVID-19. So there's minuscule protection acquired through infection. High proportion vaccinated, two doses of Sinopharm or Sinovac, but we know that that offers little real protection as time goes on against severe disease and hospitalization and death. And they're reliant on severe measures, closed borders, lockdowns, mass lockdowns on just a few cases, very tight control, surveillance and the like. And it would seem that over time, there's going to be a need to sort of figure out a way to move forward uh, to end its isolation because it is very self-isolating. There are high economic consequences for this. Hong Kong's going through a tough period right now. Australia went through a bumpy road, but has been able to begin reopening. New Zealand's begun reopening. Singapore So there are models they can point to, but what is your thinking? I mean, they need a third dose that's reliable. Maybe it's an mRNA. They need antivirals. Well, antivirals are not going to be around on that scale very quickly. So they face some tough choices. What's your thinking, Seth, on China? And what would your advice be to the Chinese? Well, one of the difficult things has been the way we do vaccine research is company by company. And so if you're, you know, Pfizer, you do studies on your Pfizer vaccine, including third dose, pediatric doses, et cetera, then the same thing for a sign of hacker, a sign of farm. What we're seeing is some of the better immunity is actually when you use heterologous vaccines, mm-hmm. that you go ahead and use one or two of the same vaccine, and then you do a boost with a different vaccine. And that data is not very forthcoming. It's just coming out. There was a big study in the UK. CEPI's doing some work, a few others, but it isn't funded in the same way that corporations would fund large trials. And this is an important lesson for the future, because if the best vaccine is, you know, two different ones or even three different ones to get immunity, we want to know that as soon as possible. That's a piece of public knowledge that's critical. So for China, I think they have to ask the question, do we want a third dose of one of our inactivated vaccines, which studies have suggested does boost it, but maybe not to the level they would get with a different product. So I think they're going to be looking towards having some heterologous boosts. They already have some different agents that they're using, like CanSino, but not at large numbers. And it may be that an adjuvanted protein or an mRNA may be something that in the future will allow them to get the type of protection we've seen in other places. Do you think there's space today for any dialogue with China? I think it is an interesting question. We need to make sure that science dialogue is not political and that that allows a conversation that can go free of all the partisan behaviors we've seen because that's going to be critical to protect the world. If China's in a place that's not protected, one might look at that and say, well, over the short term, maybe it hurts their economy. But on the contrary-wise, it hurts the world if new variants appear, get a chance to circulate, and then can jump out again, as we've seen. And I think people now understand that, Steve, because prior to what happened in India, I think people thought, yeah, if, you know, we're, we're, we're only safe unless everybody's safe. is a nice line, but we don't believe it. But that went from devastating effect in India to around the world in a month. We've seen the same thing with Omicron, you know, starting in one place around the world. So I think we're, we're fools if we don't keep in mind that we need to protect everywhere in the world. Thank you. I want to come back to how things are looking for COVAX. 2021, as you've said, 
You generously came to CSIS and, and spoke publicly and privately towards the end of 2021. It was a tough year, right? We had the interruption export ban in, in India. COVAX faced all sorts of other complications around quick access to sufficient capital, all sorts of problems of aligning donations with demand and delivery, and then awakening to the other barriers of the delivery capacity or hesitancy and refusal and the like. So we're now in 2022. I know you were able to accelerate, dramatically accelerate delivery in the last couple months of the year, ended with over 900 million doses delivered, as I recall. How's it going this year? I mean, I've seen you quoted a few places saying, we need cash, we need liquidity, we're out of cash. So there's the cash dimension, then there's the supply dimension, then there's all the relational work with uh, governments that need national plans and capacity and the like. How's the year look for you? So first of all, Steve, you're right. We had a slowdown in the middle of 2021. It was devastating. That's when we called for donations and people were generous. By the end of the year, we had delivered a little over half a billion doses through donations and then another 700 million through our advanced purchase agreement. So, you know, we've now accelerated. And for most countries, they now know doses are available. For the high throughput, they're moving through. For the low throughput countries, we're working on bespoke plans to try to increase the ability of those countries. When you countries. say low throughput, explain what you mean. So there are countries that have good absorbency and overall countries have increased fourfold their absorbency from the beginning, but some have increased 10 or 20 fold. Some are down at, you know, one or two fold. And what we need is if countries want to vaccinate their populations is that they accelerate the throughput. What does that require? It requires having healthcare workers. It requires having the systems in place, the storage capacity to move forward, the finance. And those are things we're working at. But the other challenge we have now is making sure that the right vaccine is in the right place at the right time. And so many countries have gotten donations of vaccines that may not be their first choice of vaccines. And if there's political pressure that comes with those, they can displace vaccines that might work better for their system. So what we want to get countries to is a place where they have a long-term forecast. Normally for Gavi, they have a five or 10-year forecast. What we want is at least a six-month forecast so that they know what's going to be coming and they can then plan to make sure those doses get used properly in those countries and hopefully will not get displaced by other doses that may be less desirable. But this is a real challenge still. Describe for me what you're seeing in the next six to 12 months. What are going to be the biggest challenges that you're going to need to knock down? You've already mentioned cash. Now, the cash is for delivery. 94% of the donated doses we've gotten don't come with ancillaries. They don't come with syringes. They don't come with insurance, transport, you know, all of the other things you need and you to deliver need, them. And you need about half a billion. That's correct, to do that. And then um, we've, we've asked to have funding available for a flexible pandemic pool. Now, why have we described it that way? As I said, there's a lot of dose donations. There's a lot of doses coming. But what will countries need? And we need to make sure it's the right doses. Will they need boosters for high-risk populations? That would be about 420 million additional doses. Will they need a new variant vaccine if it turns out that that comes out? Will they need to shift to a different vaccine? Because let's say they were using an inactivated approach and now they need a different boost to be able to lift up their coverage. And that's the other 4.4 billion. That actually is um, three, 3.7 billion. 3.7, you know, okay. Yeah. And, and so the idea is to have funding for delivery, about a billion, about 550 million for um, ancillary costs, and then that 3.8 billion for being able to purchase additional doses. But, you know, there's a lot of people are skeptical and say, well, we don't, do we need those doses right now? Or are we sure? And this is the problem. If you believe the epidemic's over, right. maybe you don't believe that. But if another variant comes and all of a sudden there's a surge in demand for products or you need different products, you know, we need to 
to have the money to be able to put the orders in right away. And I think that's the fundamental problem with the model. The way you need to work in a pandemic setting is having the funding available to start. Had we had contingent financing on day one, we wouldn't have been able to compete with the U.S., but we would have been able to get our foot in the door and we would have been able to at least begin to have doses reserved and flowing for developing countries more quickly. That's what we need to have in the future as we think about you know, what we should do and what lessons we should learn from this situation. President Biden has committed the U.S. to purchase and delivery to COVAX of a billion doses of Pfizer vaccine through September, I believe. How's that going? How's that going? And how important was that gesture by the United States? Well, first of all, the United States stepped up big time. They're our largest supporter. They stepped up with $4 billion in financial support. They stepped up with dose donations on top of that. And the really good news about that deal with Pfizer was the long-term nature of it, the predictability of it, so countries could begin to plan against it. So the goal by the end of 2021 was to have 200 million doses delivered, and we did that. We just got a little bit over that. And now we're moving into this next period, of course, there will be challenges because some countries will be saturated. There'll be challenges on where they can use the vaccine. But having reliable, high-quality products that we know are coming is the way you want to be able to work because then a country can say, you know, three months from now, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to absorb it there. We can look for another country that can use those doses in that time frame. When we get doses that are short shelf life that aren't, you know, necessarily the most desirable, it's very hard to scramble and get countries to take those. We, we've done that. So far, we've had very little wastage. But as we get to larger and larger volumes, there is going to be a risk of that if we're not able to do that long-term planning. And how are things going in terms of the ultra-cold storage requirements for Pfizer? So we've built ultra-cold storage in 50 countries. It's, it's big enough to hold a quarter of a billion doses. And so there is a lot of capacity out there. The challenge is it's mostly central capacity. It's not so going it's to be in the periphery. Yeah. And so you can take the vaccine out of the ultra-cold chain and use it within 30 days. The challenge is you have to have a military-like operation to be able to do that, to know you have enough people to vaccinate and to know that it can be used quickly. And so that makes it a little bit of a challenge. The other challenge with that particular vaccine is it requires a special syringe, a 0.3 cc syringes we use auto-disabled in the developing world. And so that means also we have to prepare ahead of time because those vaccines can't be used for other vaccines as well. Before we close, let's talk quickly about creating distributed manufacturing capacity around the world. We heard a little bit about that this afternoon at the town hall. Give us a quick snapshot of like, where does that effort stand right now? Where are we going to be by the end of this year? What are the main barriers? It seems to me that we're making some progress. Yeah. So first of all, this this predated this pandemic. So when Gavi started, there were five suppliers that supplied the vaccines. Four of the five were in industrialized countries. Today, there are 17 suppliers. 11 of the 17 are in developing countries. So already we had diversified and moved out suppliers. It is Africa that has the least number. We buy one vaccine from a supplier in Central Senegal, yellow fever vaccine. And so a lot of the discussion has been, how do we expand capacity in Africa? And there is an effort now to do that. The critical thing is not to turn them into white elephants. What do I mean by that? Is you need a sustainable business model. And that sustainable business model has to include the regulatory system, the quality assurance, quality control, the personnel, the maintenance people, all of those other things. The demand and the financing. And if you do that, then that becomes a system that can supply vaccines in in a pandemic, but more importantly, can supply vaccines, routine vaccines, regional vaccines, others. And that's the type of system we need. So that's been our encouragement is how
how to put that together. Gavi is the largest purchaser of vaccines in the world. We would love to expand the manufacturing base that we have. And then we do pay sometimes a surplus for supply security, but we also need them to be competitive since it's donor money. And, and so the challenge is going to be to make sure that we end up with a business model that makes sense going forward as a way to move forward. There is a lot of interest from countries to want to do this from a national security point of view. And the danger there is we're going to build lots and lots of facilities. And manufacturing for vaccines has consolidated because it's a very capital intensive project, not doesn't hire a lot of people, not labor intensive at all. It's a very quality assurance, quality control related procedure. And you don't want 200 vaccine manufacturers. You probably want more than 17, but maybe it's 25. And that's going to be an important part of the conversation because you can't say to a country, don't move forward on creating a vaccine facility. But if you create too many of them, they're not going to get to the economies of scale to be cost competitive moving forward. Industry, it seems, attitudes within industry seem to be changing a little bit. I wanted to ask you to comment on that. I mean, BioNTech just announced these miniaturized production facilities that they're going to begin disseminating, and Moderna's announced its commitment in South Africa, I believe. Say a bit about the evolution of thinking. I mean, are they shifting towards a more generous form of partnership outside of their key geographic bases, partly because they see the inevitability and they see the market? over the long term, and they're feeling the pressure around this? I mean, there's a lot of political pressure now yeah. to do that. I think the question is going to be, mRNAs are different products. They are more like a chemical production than it is a biologics. Biologics are really complicated because you can't analyze the final product. It's the process and you have to have all the control steps in there. So it may be ultimately easier to have mRNAs that are distributive. The other thing is we have lots of new technology with disposable, for example, bags that allow you to produce in closed systems. So there's a lot of technology technology that can help with this. And I suspect we will see distributive models. The question is going to be, is the business plan such that they can sustain over time? And if I hear, for example, a place saying we want to create a COVID-only vaccine site, we don't yet know whether we're going to need to have COVID vaccines after a certain point. It may be possible, but it may not. And so the challenge is, which other vaccines are they going to do and how do they keep that capacity? The reason Serum Institute of India was so good, despite the export ban that locked them down, was they produced lots of vaccines scale and they have all the people, all the equipment, all the technology, all the assays. And so the tech transfer went seamlessly and in fact is doing better than in the parent companies in terms of the yield, shelf life, other things that occurred. And that's what you want in other facilities as well. Before we close, I'll say a bit about polio. There's the, you were mentioning earlier a wild version discovered in Africa. Yeah, this is new news. It just occurred yesterday, and there hasn't been any wild polio in Africa since 2016. And a case was found in Malawi. It turns out that that is linked back to a Pakistani strain, and so it's an importation. But it looks like it's been circulating for something like 24 months, and that makes you worried that there may be other cases around it. Now, of course, Malawi has pretty good immunization system, and so there may be good protection, and that might have kept it from spreading. But teams will have to go now and and really look hard at the surveillance systems and obviously do a big vaccination campaign to try to increase immunity to make sure that if it's circulating, that it's not spreading any further. It doesn't mean that Africa loses its status as being free of polio because if this is just an importation and it can be controlled, but obviously if further cases are found, then over time that will become an issue. One last question we ask all our guests. We've asked you before when you've come on, what gives you the greatest hope and optimism looking ahead? 
Well, I am a great believer in science and the power of science, and I think we've seen it in this time. We saw when I got interviewed at the beginning of this, the fastest vaccine had been four years, most five to seven, ten, and we did the vaccine here 327 days. So the power of science is enormous. Um, we have a lot of challenges in front of us. We're talking about health right now, but climate change, many other issues that are that are there, and I think we have to have an investment and a focus on science and technology to be able to improve things in the world. But with that, we need the political will and the understanding that in a global place, in a global commons, we all have a responsibility to play. Seth, thanks so much. Thanks for all your leadership and service, and thanks for taking time to be with me this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.